Well, turn in your scriptures, please, with me to Luke the, cha- Luke the sixth chapter as we continue our study through this gospel. As you're turning there, I do want to remind you and invite you to our evening together tonight back in the multipurpose building. At 5.15, our dinner will start. That's a bit earlier than normal. And at 6 o'clock, the concert by Adam Wright will begin, and uh, we do heartily encourage you to come and join us tonight for that. Let's hear the word of the Lord, Luke 6 and verse 12. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. Let's pray together. Father, we have opened a sacred word. Your spirit has given this to us, has given it to us unerringly. And we need that same spirit now this morning, the one who preaches and all of us who study together. Grant that we should hear, grant that we should believe, and grant, we pray, that we should live the very things of which you speak this morning. We ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. Many of us have found ourselves at one time or another in our lives doing an all-nighter. I want you to think back to some period in your life and see if you can recall what that may have been. You see, there are times when a work of necessity simply can't be put put down for the night. It may have been a project at work which was time-sensitive. It might have been parents with a colicky, sick baby. It might have been a medical emergency, a trip to the hospital, or you, the physician, having to attend to that, or a woman in a long, arduous labor. Military servicemen and women, either on an assignment or in an actual warfare setting, when it simply cannot be put down. Some of us can relate to a form of an all-nighter, but let me ask us this searching question. How many of us have stayed awake all night to pray through the wee hours? Why does that sound so radical to us? Is there anything of greater importance to the believer than prayerful communion with our God? Especially so when we're facing the most difficult moments of our lives. To search out the heart of God on the great questions that we're facing. Well, our passage opens with a startling description of the Son of God in supplication all night. Our text, though brief in its five verses, has some sweet truths for us to feast on and to apply. 
There are three themes that I want to draw from the text this morning. First, our Lord's example of the beauty and of the necessity of prayerful communion with God. Second, it is Christ who calls and commissions the officers of his church. And third, even the wicked and all of their evil are within the plans and the purposes of God. Well, let's dive in together in the text. In the first place, let's open up our Lord's example of the beauty and of the necessity of prayerful communion with our God. Look at verse 12. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And you might expect to hear, and when he had finished praying, he called his disciples. But Dr. Luke wants us to hear. He went to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer. An all-nighter of a different sort than most. And all throughout the Gospels, as we read them, we hear of the disciplined practice of our Lord in prayer. In the prior chapter, Luke 5 and verse 16, we read this, but he withdrew to desolate places to pray. We have an example set before us of Christ in private, of Christ in the secret place. So let me ask you again, what about you? Where do your thoughts run in the secret place? Where do your thoughts run in private? In what fashion do our thoughts run when we have time to be alone? For our Lord, he was often found quieted and given to prayer. And during those times, there was a deep communion with his Father and a giving away of his mind and of his heart and of his will to the pleasures of his Father. And so prayer is meant to be the same for us, particularly so when we're facing the strategic moments of our lives. Now note that he was alone with the Father and the Spirit, but he was never less alone than at any other time than when he was in prayer. Think of that. When we are with our God in prayer, we are never less alone than in those moments. And so he was a long time with his father. This was no splash and dash quick hitter. He lingered. Now, have you ever wondered as you read that Jesus prays why Jesus would need to pray? He's the God-man. Why would he need to pray? Why would he cry out with earnest pleadings? Well, I submit to you it is precisely because Christ is the true man that he prays. Yes, he is God in the flesh, but he is still man in flesh. And he prays precisely for the very same reason that you and I must pray. He is the Savior, God-man, of course, the, the forerunner of true faith. And he is showing how he leads us in a life of radical dependent trust as sons and daughters. Now, John Calvin, the great reformer, 
pastor, scholar, wrote in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, I've mentioned to you before, the first draft of that was published when he was 29 years old. And in his section on prayer, if you've never read it, Google the Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin and go to the section on prayer. It is one of the finest expositions of prayer you will ever find written in Christendom. And the title of that section is this, Prayer is the Chief Exercise of Faith and is that by which we daily receive God's benefits. So apply that to what our Lord was doing. Our Lord all night was in the chief exercise of faith so that he would receive the Father's benefits. Particularly that he was crying out to his Father as he's about to call his apostles, the foundational servants of the church. And so we who are remade by grace into the image of Christ are to be communing with our Father and with the Spirit as we yield our lives to his pleasure, just as Christ did. A few verses later than our passage in verse 40 in chapter 6, Jesus makes this declaration, a disciple is not above his teacher, but whenever one is fully trained, he will be like his teacher. And so Jesus is saying that as you are fully trained in the word of the Lord by the Holy Spirit, you will more and more long to be the kind of prayer warrior that Christ was. Our master, our teacher, our savior was a man of prayer, and so then will we be as we grow up into his likeness. But let's stop for a minute. Let's admit to ourselves, let's admit to the Lord who is present, and let's admit to everybody else in this room of our prayerlessness. Is there a single one of us here this morning who prays as we ought to pray? Our prayerlessness is a crime, a spiritual crime of poverty. What do I mean by that? The scripture says we do not have because we do not ask. And so it's a spiritual crime of poverty when we're not praying. We are poverty stricken spiritually because we have ceased often to pray. Yet I want us to be encouraged in our praying afresh through the help of a gentleman named John Charles Ryle, who was an English minister, a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon. I want to read you two paragraphs. He has three means of encouragement. Listen to them. Please listen well for your encouragement. He says, there's an advocate and an intercessor waiting to present your prayers to God. That advocate is Jesus. He mingles our prayers with the incense of his own almighty intercession. And so mingled, they go up as a sweet savor before the throne of God. Poor as our prayers are in themselves, they are mighty and powerful in the hand of our high priest and our elder brother. Now listen to this image. A banknote 
by which you and I would say today, a check from your checkbook, a banknote without a signature at the bottom is nothing but a worthless piece of paper. But the stroke of a pen confers all of its value. The prayer of a poor child of Adam is a feeble thing in itself, but once endorsed by the hand of the Lord Jesus, it availeth much. The ear of the Lord Jesus is always open to the cry of mercy. That's the first encouragement. And then he says there's the Holy Spirit who is ever ready to help our infirmities in prayer. It is one part of his special office to assist us as we speak to God. We need not be cast down and distressed by our fear of not knowing what to say. The Spirit will help us if we seek his aid. The prayers of the Lord's people are inspired by the Holy Spirit, the work of the God who dwells within us as a God of grace and supplication. Surely the Lord's people may well hope to be heard, for it is not they who pray alone, but the Holy Spirit pleading in them. Is that not encouragement? And then finally he writes, then there are the exceeding great and precious promises to those who pray. What did the Lord Jesus then mean by these words he writes? Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. For everyone that asks, receive. He who seeks, finds. He who knocks, it shall be opened. So every time, dear ones, that we read of our Lord Jesus praying, it is an encouragement to us that we should enter into prayer. It is a holy example to us that we should enter into prayer. But let me give you a picture for your mind's eye to help you. A friend of mine has given me several books recently written by a man named Jim Corbett. He was an Englishman who lived in India in the early 1900s, and he was a well-known avid sportsman, but he became famous for hunting down the man-eating tigers and the man-eating leopards that stalked India during those days and terrorized the Indian villages. He writes of some of these tigers and leopards that had a kill rate of some 400 human beings that had to be found and killed. Well, he was stalking one of these tigers and he describes this stunning wildlife scene. I was lying on a ridge, scanning with my field glasses the rock cliff that was opposite me, and I saw the Himalayan mountain goat, which is the most sure-footed of all of the goats. They're called thars, T-H-A-R. On the ledge, halfway up, a thar and her kid were lying asleep. Presently, she got up to her feet, stretched herself, and the kid began to nuzzle and feed. After a minute or so, the mother freed herself, took a few steps along the ledge, poised for a moment, and then jumped down to another ledge some 15 feet below her. As soon as the kid was left alone, it began to run backwards and forwards, stopping every now and then to peer down at its mother, but unable to summon the courage to jump to where she was, for right off of that more narrow ledge was a thousand-foot drop. 
The kid was now getting more and more agitated. The mother went to what looked like a crack, a mere crack in this vertical rock face, and climbed up to her young. Immediately, she lay down next to her young, ostensibly so the young could not feed. She stood up later. The kid drank for a moment. Then the mother poised at the brink and jumped down again. Her kid began to run back and forth and back and forth, the same as she had before. And for the next half hour, he observed that the thar, the mother, did this seven more times with her kid until the kid finally abandoned itself and jumped and landed safely beside its mother, being rewarded with the opportunity to drink to its fill. And so he says the lesson was to teach her young that it was safe to follow where she led. With all due respect to our Lord Jesus, far more so than this thar did with her kid, over and over again, he leads us to prayer. He knows that we don't always understand what our prayer will mean. He understands that we sometimes come to prayer with great fears and great questions, and we don't know that we'll leave those prayers with all the answers, but we still must follow him into prayer. And it is in prayer that we will be given the opportunity to drink our fill, just like that young kid. Christ our Savior is teaching us over and over in the scriptures, again and again, that it is safe to follow him where he leads into prayer. And in fact, prayer rightly viewed is the very safest place for the believer to be no matter what we are facing. Well, our second and third themes are a bit shorter. And our second theme drawn from the text is from verse 13. It is that Christ is the Lord of the church, and he calls and equips, and he commissions his officers, the officers of his body. Look at verse 13. And when the day came, he called his disciples, many, many of the disciples, and he chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. And the names are listed there for you. After a night of communion with the Father and the Spirit, the selection of these twelve apostles, listen, is the answer that was given in the night of prayer. Don't lose sight of that. That's what Jesus was asking the Father for, the wisdom and the understanding of who it was that should be called. And he was given the answer. And calling these apostles means that these men were given an official office in the infant church, were clothed with the authority of Christ and the power to speak and act on his behalf. Now note that this is not the initial calling of these 12 disciples, but rather their formal public setting of them apart to their apostolic rule. These men were chosen by Christ, set apart by him, and commissioned by him. They derived their authority, they derived their message, they derived their miraculous powers immediately from Christ who gave his authority to them. And so... 
the principles by which the church is to be governed are not to be invented, but are to be discerned from Christ himself. He does not leave the government of his church to our invention and experiment. Listen to the apostle as he describes the church, the apostle Paul in Ephesians 2. So then you, we who are present this morning, are no longer aliens nor strangers, but you are fellow citizens, members of the household of God. Here's the point. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So the whole history of the ongoing church is is captured in these short verses. The church exists today because our Lord rooted her in the apostles who would carry his authority and his word into the world after his resurrection and his ascension. I want us to apply and be encouraged by two things as Christ calls his apostles. First, the church's power and security are vested in the headship of Jesus Christ. The church's power and her authority are vested in the headship of Christ. It is Christ who forms his body. It is Christ who is leading and governing. It is his power and plan that prospers the church. Now, do you not sometimes fear for the future of the church, humanly speaking, in your honest moments when you see the weakened state of the church and you see the tenacity of the lunacy of the evil in the world that is arrayed against the church. Do you not sometimes fear for the church? Let's be encouraged by another pastor scholar from a past age. There's something he writes deeply instructive in the verse before us. It shows that our Lord Jesus Christ's kingdom was entirely independent from the world. His church was not built by might nor by power, but by the spirit of the living God, Zechariah 6. This supplies us with proof of the divine origin of Christianity. A faith that turned the world upside down while its preachers were all poor men must have been from heaven. If the apostles had possessed money to give to their hearers or had been followed by armies to frighten their followers, an unbeliever might well deny that there was anything wonderful in their success. But the poverty of these Lord's disciples cuts away such an argument with a doctrine that's unpalatable to the human natural heart and with nothing whatever to bribe or compel their obedience a few lowly Galileans shook the whole world. Only one thing can account for this, the gospel that Jesus Christ came and which these men proclaimed is the truth of God. My brothers and sisters in Christ, in the church at large the world over and here at Pear Orchard Presbyterian Church, Amidst all that goes on, you and I need to hear this again, that Christ is the Lord of all, 
Never more so than when he is leading his church. Jesus Christ is present at Pear Orchard Presbyterian Church. Jesus Christ is leading at Pear Orchard Presbyterian Church. He is working. He is building. He is redeeming men and women, boys and girls. He is reconciling as he pours out his gracious love into hearts. He is making faithful provision for this church every single day of her life, day by day by day. Ours is to walk with this Savior in deep, deep, expectant, dependent faith as Christ leads. So will you take that into your every thought, into your every committee, into your every ministry team? Jesus Christ is present and working and leading and providing. Ours is to walk in a trusting, expectant, dependent faith. Do not be discouraged with what you see around you, perhaps what you even see in your own heart. Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, is on his throne, and from that throne he rules and reigns in this place. Period. A second application of this individual election of the apostles is this, that you are meant to take comfort from this personally. Can you imagine when Jesus gathered his disciples together on that day after a night of prayer, and there were probably hundreds of them because hundreds of disciples are spoken of. And as he gathers them together, can you imagine as he begins to call out men one by one, and you were one of those 12, and you heard your name called, and you went, what? Jesus Christ calls us individually, by name, through his electing grace. Why are you in Christ today, if you are? Because you have been wonderfully and graciously chosen by Christ, as surely as these men were. Your election is no less secure than theirs was. Why was I? Why were you chosen? Let me remind you of an experience I had in seminary so many years ago. I was in an upper-level soteriology class, the study of the doctrines of salvation, and Dr. Claire Davis was writing things on the board. His back was to us, and he was writing, I think, something like the doctrine, Anselm's Doctrine of Salvation. And then with his back to us, he said to a room full of men and women preparing for various sorts of ministry, why does God love you? And of course, we were thinking theologically. We were thinking with the subject matter of our class. And he turned around, and Dr. Claire Davis had tears running down his cheeks. And he said, God loves you because he loves you. And there is no more reason than that. For all of the beauty of our theology, God loves you because he has chosen to set his love on you. There is no reason apart from the heart of God that he loves you. And in so loving, 
That is the whole heart of our lives as believers. The whole encouragement. Listen in Jesus' high priestly prayer, John 17. He's praying for the disciples. And he says, I do not ask for these only, that is the apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. For every one of us who throughout the ages would believe in the message of the apostles. I want you to hear this. You, dear one, if you are a believer this morning here in this place, you were prayed into the kingdom by Jesus Christ. John 17 is that prayer. You belong to Jesus because he prayed you into the kingdom. God be thanked. God be praised. Let's give him his honor and his due. But in our day and age, this is your identity above all else. This is your identity that defines everything about you and everything in relationship to you. This is the essence of who you are. That you have been selected by King Jesus to be the lover of his life and the love of his soul. And with Paul, we must say every hour, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And this life that I live, I live by what? I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. How would it change our day-to-day life if every morning we got up and we prayed until we believed it? Lord Jesus, you said that you love me and you have given yourself to me. Now change my day. Our third and final theme this morning, ever so briefly, appears in verse 16. The final words of our text are, And Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. The truth is this, that even the wicked and their evil deeds serve God's eternal redemptive plans. Either in this life or in the life to come, however God chooses to do so, we will see that every single evil deed is overturned by the sovereign purpose of God to serve his plans. Look at the mystery of God's plan. That after a night of intimate prayer with the Father, the next morning Jesus calls 12 men to himself as apostles. And one of them Jesus knew was an utterly graceless, unbelieving man. Yet Judas and his wicked, lying, scheming betrayal was used to hasten the mighty divine gift of Christ's atoning death. Judas's hand in helping bring about the death of the Son of God on the cross, the greatest human act of wickedness ever done, was used by the King of Kings to secure the saving grace of those of us present this morning who belong to Jesus. In every moment of Judas's life, that he lived the lie against Jesus. He did not know that he was still subject to Jesus and serving Jesus' infinite purpose. 
thanks be to God, who alone has the wisdom and the power and the plan to work his holy ends so that all evil, even the worst of evil, is overturned by him to his glory. Brothers and sisters, Judas was subject to Jesus. All the wicked are subject to Jesus. You and I, by the grace of God, are subject to Jesus. Listen to the psalmist as he declares in one half of one verse at the beginning of Psalm 24 what is always true at every moment in time. The earth is the Lord's and all who dwell in it. There it is. Judas, a wicked, graceless man, and all graceless men and women of history, though they know it not, still serve the eternal plan of the Lord God Omnipotent. What does that mean for you today? Please be at rest. Christ is on his throne. There is no Star Wars duality between good and evil, and we don't know who is going to win. Whether you are discouraged by the evil around you in our nation or the world, or the evil that's still lodged in your own heart, we are called to rest with a humbled heart like an infant nursing at a mother's breast, that the Lord God omnipotent reigns, and he reigns by grace over his people, and he reigns in judgment over the wicked. It has always been true, and it is true today. The great day of the Lord is coming, and in that day we will bow in worship at the perfections of how everything served the plan of God. Might he receive our praise even now. Would you join me? Let's pray. Father, cause us, we pray, to be at rest. For you are high and you are lifted up. But you dwell with the weak and the meek and the lowly. And we are such Dwell with us in power, we pray, for the sake of your Son.